In just the first three weeks since George Floyd was brutally murdered by Minneapolis police officers, there's been an explosion of protests and rebellions across the country. Roughly 2,000 um, different protests um, in cities and small towns. So there's no doubt we can say that there's a real awakening happening in this country. And it was as a result of these protests, we've seen you know, many politicians and even heads of corporations immediately and quickly respond in a variety of ways, really all aimed at trying to get people to accept the gestures of reform that they're making and stop protesting and come out of the streets. Um, various local governments have made you know, some minor changes to policing, some things like uh, new bans on chokeholds and maybe bans on tear gas use, um, and also to promises of real major reform from defunding the police and even completely reorganizing police uh, forces in different cities. Um, and hopefully the, these last few weeks have showed us that in fact the fastest and most effective way to fight for reforms in this society is to organize and rely on our own forces and demand change rather than waiting patiently for politicians to pass new laws at their own pace. Usually when we do that, we wait forever. Out of all of this, questions around the role of police in society have come out into the open. You know, questions like how do we understand all of these promises for police reform? Again, clearly if we listen to the politicians, they'll say quite openly, oh yes, absolutely, the police can be reformed. Here's what Cuomo said, governor of New York. You don't need to protest. You won. You accomplished your goal. Society says you're right. The police need systemic reform. So if we listen to them, there's no question about this. Um, the police can be reformed. But what is their role in society? The question of police reform requires us to ask, well, what role do they play? How do you reform them if you don't look at the role they're playing in society? What reforms are actually even possible? And how meaningful could they be? All of these questions ultimately bring us to the question of the state in society, the role of the state, the function it plays, by state meaning the government in general. And to begin to understand this role, we have to see when did it first come about? When did the state first emerge in human history? Well, because most of our human existence did not uh, take place with us having a state or a government. By that, I mean a small group of individuals within a society with the authority to impose their rule over others, to coerce them, to punish them, to imprison them, to kill them. This is a very recent um, development in human history. Most of our human existence, in fact, wasn't spent this way. We don't see the emergence of a state like this really until around 3000 BC. And the reason that happens has to do with the agricultural revolution, which takes around takes place around 7500 BC, but before that, for really roughly 90% of human existence, we were spent in rather egalitarian, classless, and stateless societies. 
you did not have a small subgroup of society that ruled over everyone. People hunted and gathered for their food. The food was um, shared with the community collectively. There wasn't one group that ate, another group that didn't ate. There wasn't one group that helped produce the food and one didn't. For the most part, this work was done collectively and the fruits of that labor was shared by all. And decisions were made collectively. And this is how humans have spent most of our time on this planet, living without classes, without a state, and therefore absolutely without the police. If we weren't capable of living this way, we would have become extinct a long time ago. So what changed? The possibility for a state, just the possibility, only comes once we start to see class divisions. And the evolution of classes in society is rooted in the agricultural revolution. So before, before we had agriculture, before that, when we hunted and gathered for our food, we didn't have much of any surplus, any food that could be stored, built up for uh, long periods of time. We didn't have any of that. You know, so most of what we hunted and gathered was eaten right then and there. There was no room for much of a surplus at all. Well, once society started to begin to develop agricultural methods, they started to have a whole surplus of society where, you know, before maybe one person could feed one or two or three mouths, but now with agriculture and the greater yield, you could, one person could actually field, feed, you know, five, six, seven, ten, ten times as many people by their own labor. And so what this did was it created a new potential. It wasn't immediately um, sought, but eventually, and we can talk later in the discussion about this eventually, we started to see um, a section of society that would be responsible for doing the labor at the, for the benefit of the others. Um, and this created the first um, divisions in society, real class divisions. Um, and it meant that there was a subset, a small subset of society that didn't have to do the labor to, to meet the needs of their survival. Others could do it for them. And you started to have a new ruling class that can make decisions on what to do with this surplus and so on and so forth. And so when we see in the earliest, um, some of, not the only, but one of the earliest uh, forms of writing that survived is um, what was called the Code of Hammurabi. It's uh, Basically, the location is sort of present-day Iraq, and this was a society of class divisions, um, uh, 1792 to 1750 is when Hammurabi, the king, was around. And what we see in their earliest form of writing was a code of laws, right? And well, what sort of laws did they have? Well, we see very quickly, these laws were um, to determine the punishment for violations of property. So what we see, just as just a snapshot, is one having to do with slaves. What's the punishment for uh, taking someone else's slave? Killing them, okay? Uh, if anyone's caught, um, you know, robbing or taking the property of another, you put them to death, and then a reward for returning uh, slaves. And so what you see in the um, first, sort of among the first times we start to have class division, what we have is a state emerge setting up laws to impose the inequality and the class division in society, right? You can't have a society whereby the, either the majority or close to the majority are put under some sort of um, rule and oppression 
at not at their own benefit, but at their own expense, and not expect rebellion. That's just not possible. It's not possible for a minority to rule over a majority at the expense of the majority. It can't happen unless, of course, they have some sort of instrument to use to enforce their rule. And that's what the state is. So um, Ingalls put it to, uh, that the essence of the state really is army uh, um, bodies of armed men. Today, especially since due to the Supreme Court ruling, we might say just bodies of armed people because um, you, anyone, you can't be discriminated against uh, to be working for the state. Um, and so that's really at its core is the main function of the state. Of course, it's more advanced today, but really it is the instrument to maintain the rule of a minority at the expense of the majority. And it's done through violence um, as its main means, especially and most importantly, when people no longer accept the uh, rule. Um, and so we don't have to go back this far. I think our own country, the United States, probably has this uh, more explicit discussion about the function of the state if we look at the writing of the Constitution. So just two little examples. Um, okay, so this was in the founding of the Constitution. You know, just to give brief, brief background, uh, you have a situation where a revolutionary war is fought primarily by people who are poor, don't own a lot of property, who were sick and tired of the British um, making rules upon them, imposing taxes upon them, and they didn't have a say in government. Okay, so now they're the ones who fought in the war for the most part, and they want that, um, the vast majority want that situation rectified um, in a new form of government. Yet, there's a dilemma, which is, the problem with democracy, sees the founders, is that if you give the vast majority of the population the right to make decisions and vote and pass laws and so on and so forth, well, they're going to make laws that go against those who own the property and have the wealth. And so this was one of the main, not the only, but one of the main discussions that was happening in the Constitution. How are we going to constitute a new government given the fact that our society is founded upon massive inequality? And so this was just one quote, Hamilton. Um, this isn't a quote that shows up in the play of Hamilton for some reason. I haven't seen the play, but this one was skipped over. It would have been nice if it snuck its way in. Um, but here's Hamilton uh, directly recognizing this problem. He says, all communities divide themselves into the few and the many. The first are the rich and the well-born. The other, the mass of the people. So given this division, what do we do with the government? Give, therefore, to the first class a distinct permanent share in the government. They will check the unsteadiness of the second, and as they cannot receive any advantage, they will therefore maintain good government. So explicitly, can a democratic assembly be supposed to steadily pursue the public good? No, nothing but a permanent body can check the imprudence of democracy. So these guys are hostile to democracy. And this isn't new. This goes all the way back. You could see it in ancient Greece too. Plato, the philosopher at that time, said democracy will just lead to tyranny. Why? Because you have unequal classes. You have a small minority that rules at the expense of the majority. And if you have democracy, guess what that means? The majority will make the decisions and they will, the, the rule of the minority's days will be numbered. Uh, Madison, in fact, says it even uh, uh, more eloquently. I just love this first part. He says, 
the man who is possessed of wealth, who lolls on his sofa or rolls in his carriage, so this sort of rich guy just hanging out in his couch all day, cannot judge the wants or feelings of the day laborer. The government we mean to erect is intended to last for ages. So they're like, uh-oh, what are we going to do if all these rich people who just sit on their couch all day become the government? They're not going to know how to speak to the needs of ordinary workers, but still we have to have them in the government. And so they're dealing with this dilemma of how are we going to solve this? Um, you know, he says pretty clearly in England at this day, if elections were open to all classes of people, the property of the landed proprietors would be insecure. Yeah, it would be because where do they get their wealth from? Who works on that land and so on is the vast majority of the population who see no benefit from it whatsoever. So we can't let them be the ones to decide. We have to somehow make sure the landholders have a permanent share in government. Why? And here he says very clearly, they ought to be so constituted as to protect the minority of the opulent against the majority. That's their function of government. It, its purpose is to protect the minority of the rich against the majority. And so their strategy was, well, if we have this massive Senate with you know, skilled politicians who regularly change hands, um, we can have a better way of not having just the faces of the super rich be um, the ones in government, which seems like we're getting closer and closer back to that than, uh, than the opposite. So Marx, in fact, agrees with them. They're right. The modern state, is nothing but a committee for managing the affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. That's its purpose. The state, so it's more evolved than just bodies of armed individuals enforcing um, uh, the rule of a minority at the expense of the majority. It has way more um, sophisticated levels of, of operation today, but at the end of the day, the, it's an instrument, not of the people, not of the ordinary masses of the people, but of the ruling class itself. It is their instrument to maintain rule. It's always been that. It's been consciously was that, and it continues to be so today. Um, and when we look at the police, they're just one tiny little part of this. They're not even the largest part. They are what we might call the front lines of the state. Well, you know, the front lines really ultimately of, of violence, of imposing this, um, uh, rule of the minority over the majority. So, you know, in the US, what you see is the police really kind of evolved from this two, two-fold purpose. First, they were, um, this is, says, runaway, runaway slave patrol. Um, in the South, in the, under slavery, you have the beginnings of a police force that's job was to, similar to Hammurabi's code, to find and track down runaway slaves or captured slaves or freed slaves and bring them back. Um, after slavery, what you see in these pictures is what was called the convict labor leasing program, where the slaves were so were were freed, but um, you could arrest people for a whole host of trumped up charges, and then the consequence would be they'd be sent to prison and have to perform labor. Um, and uh, at the same time, up here and in other places, you see the other sort of side of the police um, in the north, where you had free laborers. You had class struggle happening, um, strikes against uh, in the construction of the railroads, or strikes in the newly forming industries. And you see time and time again, the first line of defense always is the police. And if the police aren't enough, then it's the National Guard. And if the National Guard isn't enough, then it's the army. Um, and it's because perhaps sometimes uh, in what we might call normal times, 
this role of the police is more hidden from us because people are acquiesce um, to the day-to-day -day functionings of the system. But once we start to rise up, the, the real role of the state, right, and the police is absolutely uh, clear. And so um, today it's more evolved. It's no longer, you know, just obviously just the police. This is just one sort of way to look at the U.S. state. Um, roughly 47 percent of the uh, federal budget goes to um, just the military wing of the state. So you compare that to um, uh, the military spending, it's roughly you know, the next um, 10 countries uh, combined. Um, and this goes to really show you how developed the level of the state is, everything from the NSA to the CIA to the Army to the Navy and so on and so forth. All of this is to maintain in the complex levels of affairs of the modern bourgeoisie. So when we, I'm gonna stop the share now, just wrap up. So when we come back to this question of, you know, can the police be reformed? Can, um, uh, what role can the police um, uh, play in society? The, the question that people are really asking is, how is it, or can we get the police to become a kind of neutral arbiter in society where they don't take a side and, um, they just neutrally carry out the laws of our society in any um in a very neutral way and and that's not possible that's a fantasy it, it would be like asking can you have a neutral slave whip the only way to have that would be to never use it and it would mean the end of slavery because you wouldn't have an instrument to keep people enslaved similarly there is no neutral role for the police yes reforms can be passed temporary bans on chokeholds can be passed and so on and so forth. But these are tiny reforms. They're not gonna change the role uh, that the police play. They won't change the role that the state plays. And because of this, the only real way we have to ultimately deal with the levels of inequality, the racism in our society, the violence of our society, the lack of housing, all of the day-to-day -day problems that we face is not to um, appeal for uh, reforms to the state. Um, we could fight for those, but all of those will be temporary and they will be insufficient. Ultimately, the only way to really confront these problems is to remove this society completely and organize a new one. And in that organization, through a social revolution, workers could start, ordinary people could start to organize a new way of functioning, a new form of government, actually what we might call a real democracy for the first time. It would be a, a democracy whereby the vast majority make the decisions that infect, uh, impact their lives um, and do it in the interests of all, not for some small subset of society.